we were in a parking lot and I don't know if people have heard around, but we got the knock on the door. Tuk, tuk, tuk. So obviously mm -hmm. our heart stops. I'm like, oh my God, what's taking place? We open the door to the RV and there's four or five <laughs> Uyghur kids. Hey, hey, we saw a cat in the window. Can we come in? I'm like, what? Can we come <laughs> in? I'm like, so these four or five kids come into the RV. They start playing with the cats. They start playing with the dog and the kids want to take some of our stuffed animals and whatnot. Like, no, 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 no. We can't <laughs> give you that. That's really one of the most touching moments. And it's Friday night and it's, mm. it's a Uyghur disco, man. There's some guys singing and playing and it's just so unbelievably beautiful to witness. Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. Today, we welcome back to the show for the third time, Fernando Munoz Bernal. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm sorry. <laughs> back to the show. He has been traveling across China filming documentary footage and how has is now in Western Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang. You can find him on a number of platforms from YouTube to Billy Billy and more under several names, including for movie. And are we there yet? Uh, I would start with Twitter, China teacher one, that is China teacher and the number one, as well as at are we there yet? Big C-H. Are we there yet? CH, where he drops links to his other platforms. I also just got back from Xinjiang. Welcome to the Bridge Podcast again, Fernando. Thank you very much, Jason. And uh, yeah, it's great to be back on the show to share what some of the experiences that we have had over the last few for us weeks and for you a couple of days. So yeah, thank you once again. And and let's get started. What do you want to talk about, Xinjiang? So much to discuss. Well, I mean, where have you been? Because I went to Urumqi for, I guess, one day, and then I was in Hotan for six or seven. So I mean, I was just just there for a very brief period of time, but you've been there for quite a while. Can you tell us about some of your adventures? Sure. Well, um, if you picture two American footballs, one on top of the other, that's basically how you could divide Xinjiang. So you have the southern part and the northern part. So we've been in the southern part, um, entering from the um, from the east and went along the top all the way to the border, to the west, the border with Afghanistan and Tajikistan mm. and many other stands, and then kept on going south. And now we are in Urumqi, which is kind of like at the top of that football. And we're about to start the, the northern loop. So six weeks in the south, and we're going to spend another six weeks in the north. Um, wow. The main thing to say, or the main difference that most people make when they travel to Xinjiang is that the southern area is more about the, the culture, the diversity, mm. the, um, the different minorities and whatnot. Well, the north northern part is more about the, the scenery and, and the absolutely breath taking a uh, landscape that you can see here the mountains the snow the green mm. it's just beautiful so it's um it's what we we've been in up to and we are right now in urumqi about to start the the northern loop so yeah being all over the south all over we actually didn't go it's a big desert so you go around the desert so to speak yeah yeah so um when we were in hotan you were in hotan as well yeah. <laughs> what were your impressions of hotan by the way well I, I didn't get to spend that much time there. I went to another smaller town called Pishan. Mm -hmm. Actually, we weren't even in Pishan. We went to Pishan and then we drove further into the desert south, almost to Pakistan, practically. And we went to this tiny little village. And so my impression was there's it's, you know, not a lot of water, <laughs> but I got to see something really cool. I've, I've been really interested in poverty alleviation in China for a long time. And I learned about it from some people who've seen it in Gansu, like uh, David Ferguson. But I've never actually been to any of the communities that were built for the poor until I went to Pishan County. And when I was in Pishan, I guess it's a prefecture, I went to this community where they had built 500 uh, apartments for poor people. And it wasn't like homeless people. So that's a misconception. I think some of the, I may have given on my Twitter. What they were were like 100 different desert villages with hat, which had very little amenities. They were offered the opportunity to come live in an apartment complex 
products with, you know, modern electricity and water and a television. And it was completely free and paid for by the government. So I thought that was really amazing that one of the ways that China has been able to raise people out of not poverty, but absolute poverty was to round up all these people who were living in, you know, pre-modern conditions and to give them a modern lifestyle. They're like, here you go. This is your apartment. If you want it, it's yours. And there's also a community center that's there. And so for those people who choose to like get gainful employment, they can go to the community center and they can be set up with a job. Another thing that this community came with, which every apartment has its own greenhouse. So we drove next to the apartment complex and there's just rows and rows and rows and rows of greenhouses, which I got to go into a few of them too. And uh, they have people are growing tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. And if they ha need technical skill, they can get like uh, advice from local people and uh, they can grow for subsistence or they can grow for the market. And so I was really, really, really deeply impressed seeing this because I have read a lot about uh, poverty alleviation in China. But this is my first really up close encounter with seeing how these people have been, in fact, taken out of these impoverished conditions and given a modern lifestyle. Yeah, it's uh, it's really uh, an amazing feat when you think about it. Um, I visited a, a place um, near Kashgar. It's uh, some ruins. And that's the way people used to live, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. There mm. are actually difficult conditions and dangerous conditions when you think about it because the structures are not the most solid ones. They're made with mm. um, just mud and clay and just bits of wood and whatnot. So... When you drive to this now touristy spot, you see all the houses that have been built along the road. And that's where they relocated the people. So they're like, look, mm. let's not live here anymore. Let's move you guys down the road where you can open your little shops by the roadside, when you can sell mm. food, when you can just live a better life. I, I wanted to, to note something because this is something that I did not know. When we talk about the desert, we often think about, oh, there's no water, as you mentioned earlier. In Kashgar, mm -hmm. I went to a, a museum where they explain a very ancient technique to bring water from the snow mountains to the desert. It's mm. incredible. And there are areas uh, uh, along the desert where there's thousands of wells that were built 20, 30, 50 years ago uh, mm -hmm. to bring water to the cities. So there's no water like on the surface, but underneath the desert itself, there's hundreds and thousands of tunnels that bring water from the snow mountains to the dwellings where people are. That I was mm. very surprised to learn about and to see and, and to learn the techniques of how to dig a hole, for example, on the ground with very rudimentary techniques. So mm. you need the, every single tunnel to line up. But how do you do that if you can't see where you are, if you're on the ground? Um, mm. Very interesting, very interesting process and very interesting story about getting water in the desert. And this is why those people actually get to live here without water. <laughs> it would be impossible, but that's why they get to stay here and, and, and live their lives out here in the desert, which uh, it's, uh, it's a place that is hard, but it steals your heart. It's totally mm. the, the scenery, the just the, the, the raw nature is just something that's breathtaking to me. And, and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's great to see not only those villages, as you mentioned, but mm -hmm. all the roads and all the interconnectivity that there is between all these cities. We visited about 15 different cities and prefectures and, and counties in our southern loop. And it's everything is just highways, perfect highways. And next to the highway is a service way where if you don't want to pay the fee, you don't need to pay the fee. So mm. it, it, there's no other way for, for commerce to take place over here other than railroads and highways. So to build that in the desert is such a feat, is such a mm. just just to be there in a sandstorm, just to be there in the heat. You know what I mean? And now you're working mm -hmm. on building roads. It's I mean, my hat is. I take off my hat to the people who, who develop all this infrastructure in Xinjiang. And again, the dimensions are, people don't really picture it, but it's a third the size of Europe. That's mm. how big Xinjiang is. Mm. From one village to the next, you could be talking 200, 250 kilometers. So it's, mm. it's, it's really something something to, to express admiration and respect for, for what they've done uh, in the area over the last, whatever, 10, 20 years. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. 
I saw that you had a video that's gone viral all over the place of you and a bunch of children. And I was wondering <laughs> if you could tell us that story of how do you get a whole bunch of children around you <laughs> like that? It has nothing to do with me. I mean, we went to a place called Boston Lake which mm. is um, kind of like a prefecture. Is I mean, they call them seas over here. They're so big that they call them seas. It's a gigantic mm. lake in the middle of Xinjiang, the desert. And we went to, to visit the lake and we just saw bosses and bosses of kids on a school outing. So there's mm. like mm. 500 kids that are coming to visit this lake and to see the birds mm. and to, to play in the sand and whatnot because there's a beach in this lake. And mm. of course, I'm the only foreigner walking around with a camera. Yeah. So um, there's there's a scene where they were actually asking me for autographs and whatnot. And, and I felt like, why are you asking me for an autograph? I'm just a regular person. So that kind of situation is very touching, but at the same time, it takes you by surprise when you're surrounded by hundreds of kids handing you pieces of paper to sign your name. You're like, <laughs> what? But yeah, it is what took place. We just happened to be at the same place at the same time. And they're all enjoying themselves. They're all just playing around and whatnot. And uh, at one point, I, I took out my phone and said, look, you guys... Just invite people to Xinjiang. One, two, three. Welcome to Xinjiang. That's why they yell. And that's it. So the seven seconds that, that I posted you know, on Twitter. I, st <laughs> I stole that from you because oh, yeah. I went to a school in Pishan, uh, the city, I guess. I was in, in Pishan. We went to a school and I went in and I was interviewing teachers and students and stuff. And then I... I heard that there was an English class. So I jumped in before the teacher arrived and started teaching the class for a couple of minutes. And the kids were like really excited. And I got them to say, welcome to Xinjiang also, because I just watched, I had seen your video days before. <laughs> and so I just basically stole your line. It's important for people to, to, to come to Xinjiang and see Xinjiang for themselves. It's, the doors are open. You just come here and you explore and you see. And and everything that you have in your head just changes. You see the normalcy. You see people just going around doing their things, doing their business. Something that fascinated me was the livestock market in Kashgar. Oh, my God. Mm. I had never seen so many um, animals in my life. There's thousands <laughs> and thousands of thousands of sheep and goats and horses and cows. And they're all trading them. And you see money changing hands oh how much for this one how much? and you know what i found very interesting i mean it's very difficult to express this on on, on a podcast but how they check kind of like the fat content of the animal they kind of like they push mm -hmm. with their hands at the back and they grab the the derriere of the <laughs> of the sheep and 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 as they're talking price they're doing this checking and i'm like hey, this is worth the price so this is not worth the imagine somebody just sticking their hands into into the wool <laughs> trying to figure out like do i feel the ribs or not is this animal fat enough mm. um yeah that was super super interesting the weighing of the animals the marking of the animals and you walked next to it and what you have is the food the freshest freshest lamb you can possibly <laughs> eat and and it's all in this atmosphere of very rudimentary you know uh, very dusty very people these are farmers this is nothing mm -hmm. elegant this is nothing sophisticated it's just raw it's absolutely beautiful to experience if anybody comes to Xinjiang and comes to Kashgar you have to stop by the livestock market it's, it's an experience that you will never forget and um yeah, it is it, the whole idea of, of some of the clips that I make. It's just come to Xinjiang, come see this, come see for yourselves. <laughs> uh, that actually reminds me, and this is totally off point. I'm completely off point. My grandfather in California, in the Central Valley in the early 1980s, he, he had to take me with him because he was going to an animal market. And it was essentially like a really small um, auditorium where there were like a couple hundred people inside bidding for animals. They were bringing animals in like cows and sheep and things. And they had one of those people who talks really fast. Mm -hmm. It was like, do we hear 100? Do we hear 110? You know, like, <laughs> and it, it, your story kind of reminds me of that because they were just hundreds of animals being brought through. And my grandfather, I think, I think he was there to buy a couple cows or something. But, you know, I probably guess, not uh, as organized, probably not. I mean, I, I was also in California, but I never went to a livestock uh, auction kind mm -hmm. of thing. But 
I've seen videos and it seems kind of like organized. Here comes this lot and okay, who bit? No, this is just people shaking hands and just walking through manure. It's just, it's, it's got nothing like you would imagine uh, an auction to be. And what I found very interesting is once they do a deal, they sit down and have watermelon because there's watermelon places in every single corner. So there's hmm. dust, there's manure, there's all these kinds of things in the air. But once the, the deal is done, okay, let's share some water. <laughs> Some watermelon. It's um, no. It's That's I mean, cordial. when I when it's like I, having tea or coffee or something. Yeah, it's it's, it's a way to cement the the deal. Okay, good, perfect. Um, see you next season when I buy more. I was surprised to know the price. These animals they sell for about six hundred RMB, depending on the wow. weight, of course. And you can imagine just how much meat they can get out of that. And even though selling lamb skewers for five yuan or for for six yuan and some places 10 yuan there's still a lot 20. of profit <laughs> oh they <laughs> the gave you the foreign price you went, <laughs> apparently you went to the same market that i went to because you showed me footage of the same market that i went to uh -huh. and i i had i bought chuar there it was on a stick it looked like a branch someone had ripped cut from a tree it's the redwood it was, thing yeah it was it was a 20 kwai for but it was like amazing like versus beijing it was like i don't know a thousand percent as much meat so it was like 10 times as thick it was like a huge these huge hunks of meat yeah you went to the night market in hotan there's actually two yeah. night markets in hotan they have a new one um i visited in 2021 i visited both in 2021 but of course this is this is more like a touristy place so they're going to charge you a little bit more but if you are by mm -hmm. the roadside if you're in a in a village and you go into some small restaurant they'll charge you five they'll charge you six and it's pretty much the same size. Um, but still, there's a lot of money to be made out of an animal that costs mm. 600 RMB. So, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of people don't see the the wealth that's created by by, by these restaurant owners or other people who um, trade in these animals. It's um, it's really surreal, honestly, when you go to mm. this to these, uh, particular market in, in Xinjiang, uh, sorry, in Kashgar. Because everybody's selling the same. Everybody's selling the same things. But everybody's packed. It's just full of people. Half of mm. them are tourists, but, well, the locals also have to be there. You know, the, the, the truckers that bring the animals, the right. ones who work uh, doing the transactions and the weighing in and the checking the, the vaccinations and all the different health controls. Everybody has to eat there. So it, the atmosphere is, I cannot describe it to you guys, but it's just something that needs to be experienced and maybe you can go to my channel and check one of the videos that I'll post when, when I get around to that time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I also wanted to talk about the people because that's obviously something that sticks out. You know, I was actually, I didn't know what to expect going to Xinjiang. So when I arrived in Urumqi, I only got to stay there a little while, but I did walk around in the, in the city at night and I did immediately within one block of my hotel find like a mosque. And so I was like, okay, so oh, actually two mosques. There was one next to the hotel and there was one another block away. And the, but I, I was really surprised because flying to what Chinese call Hutian or Hotan, I almost didn't see Han people practically. It was yeah. all ethnic minorities. And apparently it wasn't just Uyghurs because I, I couldn't tell the difference, honestly. <laughs> there are Uyghurs and Tajiks and Kazakhs and all these different people all living together in Hotan. And they all look different. And what I found really surprising was that there is... I guess it's Uyghur. It could be Kazakh. I don't really know. There is like Arabic writing or Uyghur writing mm -hmm. everywhere on every sign, on every menu, on, you know, like public signs, on public street signs, on restaurant signs. And so we hear a lot of the time that there's some sort of erasing of culture, but I, I didn't experience that at all. I saw <laughs> that there was a lot of different cultures. There were so many different ethnic cultures existing side by side that I had a hard time differentiating which one was which at different times. What has your experience been in that in regards to seeing uh, ethnic culture in uh, Xinjiang? Well, they, they're spread all around Xinjiang, right? So because we've been driving slowly from one place to another, moving west to the border areas, there's like 14 different countries that border western Xinjiang. So in each town, you see people that look a little bit different. Their 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 attire is different. Some of them wear headscarves. Some wear different kind of uh, headgear. Um, so you start. To to see the differences little by little and this is not touristy places just you walk into a restaurant and people are dressed like that and mm. that's that's how you can spot okay this is a i don't know which minority they are but this is a different minority from the ones that i've seen before oh this is a different mm. one oh this is another one 
Um, so I've seen several different minorities. Perhaps the, the place where I was most shocked was when I was in Kashgar. Kashgar is huge, okay? In terms of mm. not, not the city itself, but the, the prefecture, it's mm. 500 kilometers, more or less. So mm. think about this, this size. Imagine, I don't know. It's like from, the size of a country. Uh, from San Francisco to, to, to San Diego. That, that's all a prefecture and that's all Kashgar prefecture, right? But mm. there's different uh, cities and small uh, small uh, villages, whatnot, along the way. There was an area right next to uh, a border with Afghanistan where I saw a man with a full mustache. Uh, do you remember Magnum P.I., Tom yeah, Selleck? Yeah. I saw yeah. a man at a restaurant with a full Tom Selleck mustache. And he's <laughs> looking at me because I have also grown like a, like a, a lock kind of thing. So he's looking at me yeah. and looking at him. So I nod at him. He nods at me. I'm like, hey, hey, we acknowledge that we are... <laughs> Facial hair people. Facial hair people. <laughs> he looked nothing like anybody else that I'd seen. He, he looked like Magnum PI to me, actually. Mm. Obviously not a word of English. Putonghua, uh, very, very poor. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the people that I, I carry in my mind because I had never seen a person with such a full mustache mm. <laughs> in, in, in China. And, and he was there having his noodles at the restaurant where we were. Um, if you remember on Twitter, I think I posted a photo where we arrived to this um, Pamir Plateau, which is mm -hmm. yeah. part of Kashgar. And in this restaurant, the people were different attires. As I said, I don't know if they were Kazakh or from uh, Tajikistan. I can't tell. Their Putonghua is difficult to understand. So mm -hmm. that's that's another telltale that you're talking to somebody from a minority. Now, when we started kind of like coming back towards the east, so from Kashgar to Hotan, um, we started in a place called um, Shachi and mm -hmm. absolutely everybody was Uyghur. That's when I, that's when we were in a parking lot and I don't know if people have heard around, but we got the knock on the door, tuk, tuk, tuk. So obviously... Mm -hmm. Our heart stops. I'm like, oh my God, what's taking place? We open the door to the RV and there's four or five Uyghur kids. Hey, hey, we saw a cat in the window. Can we come in? I'm like, what? Can we come in? I'm like, sure. But we're like just waking up now. <laughs> so these four or five kids come into the RV. They start playing with the cats. They start playing with the dog. And, and we're trying to communicate. And the kids want to take some of our stuffed animals and whatnot. Like, no, 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 we can't give you that. That's really one of the most touching moments uh, because it tells you that how interested they are in other lifestyles, in, in, in other types mm. of, of, um, of living conditions. People living in an RV, what is this? And they're brave enough to just come and tuk, 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 knock on the door and, and see who's there. And when they saw a foreigner, they were not intimidated at all. They just walk in and, hey, <laughs> can we sit down and play with your cats? That was mm. such a such a fun memory that I will take with me from from my experience in in the in the south. And as I said, mm. we this particular place, Sacha, we I decided to do like a walk and talk. So I'm mm -hmm. walking around mm -hmm. with my camera, and we hear that there is a night market, but we don't know where it is. So we're yeah. wasting a little bit of time looking here, looking there, and then we go through an alley that is uh, it has light in the heart in the shape of a heart. I'm like, mm -hmm. the heck is this? It's like, okay. So we walk through the arch, and we hear music, and it's Friday night, and it's mm. it's a Uyghur disco, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a we there's there's some guys singing and playing and it's just so unbelievably beautiful to witness and 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 I'm there with my phone above people's heads because I think that you 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 had to write your name down or all something to 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 dance because they are all in uh, under like a, a small hut kind of mm. kind of thing and that's where they're dancing but the people outside the hut um and there's some handrails some rails so people are looking, people are watching, and inside the people are just dancing. But this is not tourists at all. We are the only two people that are not from there. Yeah. Everybody's just there talking and commenting. Oh, look at Mary. Oh, look at Jane. Oh, look at Paul. He's dancing so funny. You know, they just is their yeah. community just enjoying a Friday night of dancing. It was unreal. Each song is like half an hour. <laughs> the songs are so Actually, long. I think that's what's so compelling about your story is like a lot of 
us who go to Xinjiang, we're there for a week or two. And so we don't get the opportunity to see all of the smaller communities, all of the smaller towns, you know, like get a, a big picture of what's really going on. And you've just been driving around basically doing whatever you wanted. And I think that is why I think so many people are interested in what you you are doing. And that's why I really wanted to have you on, <laughs> because you are kind of getting a more mosaic picture of really what life is like there. So, you know, stories like this are amazing. I did see some dancing, but I kind of my dance, the dancing I saw was sort of a mix. I was in Hotan and we were brought to the uh, market and I was I left. I left the market and went a few blocks away. A few blocks away, there's a, a big plaza in China. If anyone who's lived in China, you know that every city people go dancing at night. And so like they called damas in some cities, but it's, it's increasingly young people and men and women and all kinds of different kinds of dancing. And saw Chinese just people dancing, right, of different ethnicities. They're just dancing pop music, you know, contemporary pop music. But there were also like ethnic people dancing. I'm assuming it was Uyghur. And they're like dancing to traditional music and they were, had their own corner. They were like maybe, I don't know, a thousand people in this giant plaza dancing in different groups of about a hundred each with different kinds of music. This isn't like a provided, it's not some sort of thing that's shown to tourists. I, I literally just uh, went off into the city and found my own thing to do. And yeah, I just like in all the other cities in China, people like dancing at night. Yep. It's uh, it's part of their DNA, I suppose. You've seen on Twitter all those uh, videos of little kids that are three, four, five years old. And they're so good at dancing. It's just it's oh, just gosh, what they yeah. do. Is it's it's in it's in their genes. Um, the one thing that um, I remember I remember seeing it. We were in Aksu, I think. It's a big big square, just like any other city in China. And I saw um, different kinds of dances you were talking about. One thing that I that I noticed that was quite interesting were people playing uh, Chinese chess and people playing oh, cards. Yeah. Like it's it's just a place where the community goes to to mingle, to stay in contact with their friends, and and, and mm -hmm. it's such a. I don't think that people understand the social value of these squares and these places because they they create a, a, a place for people to stay connected, to stay relevant, to stay informed, to stay uh, up to date with what's going on in the city and whatnot. Because that's that's all they're doing. What are your they're, neighbors they're, up to? Exactly. They're talking, <laughs> they're chatting, they're just walking around, just grabbing a bite or having a smoke or swabian. It's it's such a unique thing in China. And it was very pleasant for me to see it also here in Xinjiang, whether it is mm -hmm. with Han people or only uh, minorities, which is what I saw in, in Xiaochi. It was nothing but Uyghurs and they were having a great time. Something to be said about the music. I don't know if you're familiar with the tritone idea that it's uh, an, an addictive kind of combination of notes when you play music. Oh no, my God, no. this music is contagious. I could have stayed there the whole night, but we had to go to sleep. And you also notice that, right? Like how daylight is longer. Oh my and, gosh. I was so, I heard about it. But I was so surprised. It, <laughs> the sun went down at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Yeah, 10 o'clock, the sun's still out and people are just out. So when people, when people say, oh, um, the party went until three o'clock uh, for you is probably midnight. I mean, for, yeah, for normal yeah. people it would be midnight for that is three o'clock in the morning. So we couldn't, I don't normally stay past midnight because I need to get up early. So, but that, that dance was just something. Something else that was, has amazed me a lot is to see children in the streets. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, we all, even in the South, in Guangdong, um, most kids live in gated communities, at least the kids that I, that I know. Right, um, yeah, yeah. So they go from school and they go home and they play in their gated community. So it's not that common to see kids just enjoying life outside of their gated communities or the school here they're everywhere in the streets late at night they're just walking around they're just playing with the kids they just you it reminds me of back home back home we're in colombia we don't have that many gated communities so you play in the parks you play out in the streets you play in front of people's homes that's what you see a lot here kids uh doing very simple games and, and playing with very rudimentary toys just in front of their homes. Um, kids that are not immaculate 
as you as you as you probably saw the there's yeah. so much dust there's so much dirt but it's fine they're just kids they're just kids being kids uh that's something that really really i've i've enjoyed seeing because it breaks me back to my memories of growing up as a kid just going outside and play with your friends enjoying life i see a lot of that here mm. oh, yeah. you're listening to the bridge well you know i noticed when i was uh, very briefly there that Urumqi must be the largest city yeah. because we flew into Urumqi before flying uh, to Hotan. And then we flew out through Urumqi on the way back to Beijing. You're in Urumqi now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the oh. southern county of Urumqi, which is about 15 Have kilometers. you been into like downtown? Into yes. the like, yes. I'm, I'm a little curious about modern life. Like, you know, for example, like back <laughs> in, in the States, we have malls, but they're nothing like <clears throat> Beijing, Shanghai, you know, big cities like Dongguan, right? Where they just malls everywhere. Every few blocks, there's a giant mall that's like 10 stories tall and full of people. Is that is there something like that in Urumqi? Is it have that like you know sense well, of modernity? We went to the southern because we are about fifty kilometers from the city. So yesterday we went to oh. do some shopping. Uh, so that takes us an hour to get there. But we drove around a shore, a small area of southern part of your Urumqi uh, municipality, the city itself, and there is malls every. Three or four kilometers, you've got your Starbucks, you've got your Burger Kings, you've got your... It's just like any other Chinese city that, mm -hmm. that you've been to, Guangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai, um, team, uh, the Canadian uh, fast food restaurant is there. You have every, every necessity, everything that you might need, you'll find it in these big places. And as I was talking to, to our friend Mario also, it's, mm -hmm. yes, that's Urumqi, but there's so many other big cities that we've never heard of that have mm. the same uh, level of comfort. So mm -hmm. you can find malls and you can find Starbucks and international hotels in cities that you've never heard of. Mm. But, mm. but they're populated. There's a million people here. There's two million people there. So it's been a surprise to me because obviously you got, you got the villages and the small communities. But when you get to cities that are more populated, then it is like any other place in, in China with different architecture, of course, and different different mm -hmm. products and different brands and offerings, but it's it's pretty much the same. Speaking of products, you know, I was kind of like on a tour, so everything is uh, supposed to be very Xinjiangy. So like we're drinking um, camel milk. I guess it's I have to try to qualify a sweetened iced camel yogurt drink, uh -huh. I guess. So I'm, I'm wondering what kind of special foods have you had out there that a little bit different from the rest of uh, China? Well, they like yogurt here quite a lot, and 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 it's more like um, thick yogurt, so borderline ice cream. You know, you eat it with a spoon; yeah. you don't drink <laughs> it. And they add uh, honey to it because it's a little bit quite mm. sour. That's that's something that. And what they do is they shave some ice and they mix it with this yogurt and a little bit of honey, and then you drink it as a very cold drink in a very hot day. Um, that's one thing that I, I hadn't tried before. Other thing is, um, a lot of a lot of drinks here don't exist in other parts of the country. Some of them probably imported from other countries uh, along the border. Things that are one of the flavors that I've discovered that I really love and different brands is uh, lime with mint. So imagine lime with mint. It's it, yeah, it's a bottled drink like a Sprite or a Coke, right? It's a carbonated drink. Yeah, lime with mint. It is absolutely refreshing and. And huh. it's refreshing, even if it's not in the fridge. That to me has been like, oh my God, a discovery. And um, wherever I go now, that's what I pick. <laughs> now, when we leave Xinjiang, uh, I'm probably going to miss it. Different things as in different kinds of noodles. They have a noodle here. I forgot the name. I really, really enjoy it. Imagine that you have spaghetti or, or noodles, but you cut tiny little pieces of... I had that one time and I was, I was really surprised. It's it tiny, very, tiny, very tiny, good. tiny yeah. little blocks of... of uh, I'm talking like half a, half a centimeter. 
and you cut, yeah, cut, yeah, cut, yeah. cut, 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 and it's Finely just a mountain. noodles. Yeah. Exactly. Those are with, ve- really, with like really little good. bits of vegetables and little bits of meat. Yeah, it was everything was like <laughs> minced. It was like they took the noodles and everything that was going to go in and minced it up. Really, it was really good actually. I only had it one time. When I when I travel to a different place and I mention on Twitter, oh, I'm in this particular place. There's always somebody commenting like, oh, this is the place is famous for apples. Oh, this place is famous for pears. <laughs> oh, this place is, pla- is famous for this or for that. So it's like every single city is special for some kind of fruit. Hami will know Hami melon, right? Yeah. That's where you. That's where we entered from Chengdu. So it's it's been also interesting to see um, how the identity of that community revolves around that particular fruit. I wanted to talk to you about something interesting that I've been meeting. I'm going to say it here first. I haven't actually posted on Twitter, but there is a very important message behind the Shoulieu. You know the Shoulieu? No, what's a It's Shoulieu? a pomegranate. Eleven? It's a no, pomegranate. Oh, yeah, yeah. I went to a pomegranate farm, but there weren't in season when I was just looking at flowers. The whole idea is pomegranate has been has become the symbol of Xinjiang because of how closely together all the different uh, seeds of the pomegranate are. And that's mm-hmm. a symbol for the unity of Xinjiang. So when you see pomegranate in Xinjiang, you will see it in banners, you'll see it in small little sculptures, you'll see it everywhere. That's the message of unity. We're all minorities, mm-hmm. we're all in this together, we need to stay together and stay strong. So pomegranate has a, a very special meaning for the people of Xinjiang that very few mm. people know of. Uh, and uh, when I learned about this, I was like, wow, it's beautiful. I love pomegranate, number one, but <laughs> <laughs> but I like the meaning behind the fruit. Did you try pomegranate juice? I did. I was really surprised how good it was. And I really am kind of addicted to it now because it's sour and sweet at the same time. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. But they sell you either, either, either or the other. They say like, do you want sweet or do you want sour? Usually the oh, sweet well, one is more expensive. They just gave it. We, we showed up at a, because we're like <clears> on a tour again. And so we went to a pomegranate farm and the first thing they did was give us pomegranate juice. Mm-hmm. And then we went to, into the farm and was like, they also had walnuts there. So it was like, it's really interesting how, because we're in the middle of the desert and outside of this farm, there's sand. And so inside they have these huge, I guess they're called white poplar trees. Mm-hmm. And they're these huge, super tall trees that kind of fence in the whole farm and then be inside of that they have a ring of walnut trees and then inside of that are all of these pomegranate trees but the pomegranate trees were just flowers when i went there Mm. so but they served us i guess last year's uh juice it was delicious it's so good Uh, at first i thought it was wine but it's like no 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 this is shoulieu and and, okay fine let's try it absolutely delicious the other thing is when you come to xinjiang you have to eat none what I didn't know is that there's a hundred different types of naan. <laughs> oh, really? I only had one. Now I feel like I didn't get the full experience. They, they have, because they'll, they'll put different seats on top or they'll put some different fillings in it and, and different sizes. We visited a place that is known for the, it's known as the big naan city. Ginormous naan. They're about, I don't know, 80 like centimeters. No, about 80 centimeters in diameter. Ginormous. I mean, mm. huge. Um, yeah. And, and people buy them and, and they eat naan every day here in Xinjiang. Is, uh, it is said that every person eats naan every day. It's something that they have to have every day. Mm. Like, I don't know, they have it with their tea and, and, and that's part of breakfast or, or, or a meal. And there's some that are smaller. There's some that can be shipped all over China because they mm. last for, I don't know, two, three months with meat, with nuts, with almonds, with all kinds of things. So yeah, nan is, is in itself is a is an art. And how they make it, I posted a video about about how they make it this big nan. And it's something that takes place in the kitchen where they actually mix the dough and all the things. And then they put it outside where the ovens are. And then there's guy actually giving it the final shape and sticking it to the wall. And they stick mm. to the walls and they cook there for some time. And once they're ready, they just uh, pry them out and put them outside to sell. Um, mm. it, there's nothing better than none right out of the oven. It's just mm. surreal. The taste and the smell and the, it's so good. So... That's one of the things that that um, you you gotta try when you come to to Xinjiang, and if you can have it right out of the oven, much better experience. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm already planning a trip again next uh, next year. Again, I'm not gonna be able to go as long as you, obviously, with your three month trip tour around the entire province. But I think I want to focus on Urumqi next time. My my wife and I are thinking about just going to Urumqi. I want to really see the more modern parts of the city because I feel like all I saw on my last trip was like 
ethnic stuff. So it's like ethnic this and ethnic in little towns. And so I really want to see what modern life. I mean, I know it's probably just going to be the same as modern life here in Beijing, mm. but I want that's what really want to like just see the modernity of Xinjiang rather than all of the deep cultural parts. I think that's what a lot of people in the international community kind of want to see also. I think both aspects are really interesting for the kind of discussion that's being had around the world. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, so you are traveling with your wife and you guys have a drone. So a lot of the footage that you're posting is of you guys traveling. I think that's really meta and cool <laughs> because you guys are like winding through all of these uh, roads in the mountains and like literally you're we're watching you as you travel around the province, which I think is really, really cool and uh, interesting. I'm, I'm very slow in, in the in the editing and, and the, the production side. I, I know that I'm capturing all this footage and I'm going to dedicate it's time at footage. the end. Uh, so I share bits and pieces of a lot more than I have. But yeah, uh, there's one thing to to remember that you cannot actually fly drones on the highway because you you cannot stop on the highway. So oh. we only make shots uh, when we are on Guodao uh, or like national roads that are not highways. Yeah. Uh, so we can stop at a corner, just send it up, and just okay, drive a couple of kilometers and make a couple of shots of the car. But we have made some shots that are just unbelievable. Like when you're traveling through Xinjiang, you have to go through lots of very high rocky mountain systems and the mm. roads just break through all those rocks. We have some shots of us pulling the RV in some of these rocky areas that just it's out of this world. <laughs> it just looks yeah. like out of this world. When we went to there's a place called Dahaidao, um, uh, near Hami, it's mm. you actually need to register to go there because it's so dangerous. I oh, mean, yeah, there's nothing there. You drive for 80 kilometers and you get to your hotel and that's it. But between the gate and the hotel is 80 kilometers of, of dirt wow. roads and sand. Mm. I We actually rescued a guy who got distracted by the beauty of all these rocks and all this. And he ended up in the sand and he couldn't take his car out. So we oh, stopped wow. and well, I, I carry equipment and whatnot so with the winch we took him out so that was the first rescue the second rescue that's awesome the second rescue was a motorcycle guy in the pamir plateau there's a stretch of road that's 15 kilometers long and there's about 600 turns it's is the panglong wow. panglong road it used to be the way that shepherds would bring their sheep in and out of the area and then mm. they just paved it and now it became a tourist attraction because it's just so unique People say that <laughs> after driving, they get calluses on their hands because you're 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 making hairpin after hairpin after hairpin after hairpin. It's insane, <laughs> and you go from three thousand meters, you climb up to four two four three, and then go back down to like two eight on the other side. So it's mm. it's and it happened to be um, a very blue sky day with uh, uh, snow on the mountains. It was so wow. beautiful. And then there was this motorcycle guy that we'd met a couple of days earlier in one of the boondocking places where we stayed. And um, when we're driving, his chain broke. Mm. So he's just basically, he's dead, right? Nothing to do. Yeah. So he signaled and, and we stopped and uh, we, we pulled him. We connected his motorcycle to the car and we basically brought him back to the city to safety where he was able to fix to get his, a new his chain. chain. Yeah. So we've done two rescues so far. But well, that's very kind of you saving people <laughs> in the deserts and the mountains. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an episode in itself. The the whole uh, adventure of and I know I mean, this this place is really one of the reasons why you need to register when you go in is because anything could happen. You could yeah, die. Right. There's there's wild animals. Have you seen the, the video lately of the, the brown bear here in Xinjiang? I haven't, no. There is a brown bear who entered a farmer's house and, and he's like, I don't know what to do because he's got cows and sheep and whatnot. So he called the police and the police spent six hours trying to get this ginormous brown bear out of his house. It's very recent. <laughs> Just look it up on, on Twitter. Um, so, no, yeah, there's wild animals here. Uh, not only the heat, not only the, the, the sandstorms. So, yeah, they need to know 
who's going into an area and yeah. who's coming out. And that makes a lot of sense well, to me. Having said that, what's really interesting, I think a lot of people don't know, is you don't, beyond special areas like what you're talking about, you don't actually need permits to go oh, to no, Xinjiang. No. no, no, no. Yeah. So if you have a visa to come to China or you're living mm -hmm. in China and you have a work visa, you can just get on an airplane and go. I mean, I, I recommend you get all of your IDs and, you know, like you would normally have, but you can just go there. Like, so that I think that is something a lot of people don't realize. Places where you need to register are actually places where there's just danger to people, as in uh, dehydration or a sandstorm yeah, or so. Yeah. And it's not just foreigners that need to register, it's everybody. They just need to yeah. make sure that they account who's going in, who's going out. The other places where this area in the south of Kashgar uh, borders like four or five different countries. So those border areas, they, they are a little bit more controlled. So you need to apply for like a little like a little passport, basically, which is a mm -hmm. permit to go in. And they tell, OK, how many days are you going to be here? How many days? But that's the only area where we've had to do anything uh, out of the ordinary, out of just carrying our passport. Uh, but again, not only foreigners, foreigners and Chinese. It's a, right. it's a border area that's uh, because of the topography, because of the geography itself, it's um, a little bit difficult to, to control, no? People mm -hmm. going in and out. So either you're a resident and they know you or you're a tourist and you have this little thing. If you don't have that, then okay, what are you doing here? Do you know what I mean? Being a border area makes sense. I, mean, I think that makes sense in terms of like, if you're in the United States and you go into some parts of Yosemite, they want to make sure they check who you are and account for you too, in case, you know, you disappear. I think you get the kind of same thing. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I wanted to talk about climate a little. Now, one thing you said that surprised me and I didn't really know is that maybe there are a lot of underwater source, uh, sorry, underground sources of water. But when I was flying from Hotan to Urumqi and Urumqi to Hotan, I noticed there are a lot of snow-capped mountains and I was watching really carefully and there are little rivers between all of the mountains like going downhill to somewhere. So I did notice in different parts of the places I visited, there are oasis in the middle of the desert where yep. they're growing all kinds of food, walnuts, and so forth. So I, I wanted if, to ask you if you could elaborate a little bit more on, because you've seen a lot more of the area, the climates that you've kind of seen. Well, as, as I mentioned, the two footballs, <laughs> the south is really, really dry on mm -hmm. the surface, but obviously it borders a lot of uh, snow-capped mountains with um, Everest and uh, Tibet oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, all these areas very mountainous. And when you get to the north, the north is actually known as the, the Chinese Swiss Alps. I mean, I look mm. out the window from my RV right now and it's a snow-capped mountain, absolutely beautiful, mm. gorgeous. So it's completely different what you see in the south and in the north. Now, in the south, um, there are huge resources of fresh water in the mountains. Now, mm. the thing is how to channel that, how to carry that water to the places where they're most needed. And that's where mm. these um, the systems, I'm Googling right now because of Caress, sorry, K-A-R-E-Z, Caress mm. systems. There are tunnels that are dug all along the, the, the skirt of the mountains in order mm. to carry water to the villages and the and the cities and the residential areas. There's tons mm -hmm. of reservoirs. There's lots of reservoirs at the, the bottom of the glaciers. And all this water is there, accessible for, for people to use and for people to consume. The color mm -hmm. is very special. There's also uh, hot springs. We were in this uh, mm -hmm. in this hut, uh, Hami desert area, this uh, Dahai Dao. There's actually water that you cannot touch because it's so hot. It's <laughs> coming from the ground. I mean, as a region, the amount of resources of all kinds are here. There's, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. geothermal, mm -hmm. there's, there's water, there's wind. The amount of wind and solar that you see here on... Yeah, I started making a video and I drove about 10 kilometers. 15 kilometers, just one yeah. farm gathering solar power. Just one. Wow. I w I'm really e eager for you to post uh, some of those. I love uh, renewable energy. And I've, I've seen some of the satellite images of like the wind, where it's just like rows and rows and rows and rows and rows mm -hmm. of wind power. So I I'd love to see some of the footage that you have coming. <laughs> it's it's uh, one of the places where there's so much vast open spaces with very heavy winds. I mean, we I didn't know how common uh, sandstorms are and how strong the wind is here. 
I mentioned in one of my tweets that we were turned around on a highway because the winds were just so high. They said like, no, you can't, you can't continue. You need to turn around. It's not safe for you to, to keep going. Wow. So uh, <laughs> your RV could get knocked over. Yeah. And there were three guys in adventure motorcycles. They were also turned around. You could see the motorcycles at 45 degrees trying to fight the wind. And it's wow. weird because it picks up. You're here, you're fine. And then three kilometers later, it's just like everything is rocking. So, yeah, they, they are able to, to to harness this resource in these areas because there's wide open and why not? So it's, it's one of the industries that is um, growing quite fast here in Xinjiang, renewable energy. Well, you know, uh, we only have a few minutes left. Uh -huh. I think based on having heard you, I think I've rewritten next year's plan for myself, my wife and I. I think we'll go to Urumqi and then we'll head out some of the Swiss Alps you're talking about. That sounds amazing. Oh, dude. But I, last question on that point. Let's say someone's never been there. They don't know what to expect. Where should they go, Fernando? I am. I. That's difficult because it really depends on how much time you have. <laughs> Look, if you want to experience culture, the minorities, the way of living in the desert, then definitely go to Sal, go to Kashgar, um, go to Hotan, go to if you want to experience scenery, you know, the beautiful landscape, the beautiful scenery, the beautiful mountains, mm. the fresh air, the green mountain. It's just so weird, Jason. You drive mm. three hours and you go from the desert to, to lush pine mountains. You're like, what? So if you want to see that, go to the north, go to Ili. Mm. We haven't been there, but we've seen video and that's where we're headed now. Uh, mm. All these beautiful lakes and, and glaciers, that's in the north. So Urumqi is kind of like your arrival point. And then you decide mm. you go south or you go north. Unless you're Fernando and you just drive in from wherever. <laughs> the other thing is that, <laughs> because, yeah, keep in mind well, that distances are, are insane. So you need to arrange transportation. So the best way would be to, to rent an RV. There's lots of services that rent RVs here. And you don't need a special license for that. You can just mm. rent it. And uh, peak season is July. And just mm. drive out because, yeah, you, you'll spend five days, seven days visiting different areas of, of the north or the south. And that's when you get to see the things. If you stay in one place, you're rather limited into you know you can see I, I said that was the last question but as long as we're, we're been following fernando around china i think the last <laughs> time we talked to you you were in yunnan yeah now you're in xinjiang headed towards the north you say you're going to be there for six more weeks where is next on fernando's tour of china um after we're done with xinjiang we're going to inner mongolia so we probably wow, go okay. to gansu um hmm. which is also quite deserty and whatnot we will go to in 2001 we went to um Dong, Donghuang, which is absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful, is this half moon lake. And we've been there, but definitely worth going again. And uh, wow. yes, we're going to spend probably another three months in Inner Mongolia, which is also wow. quite big. And then we end up in the East Coast and start going down the places that we couldn't go in 2022. So yeah, that's that's where we're headed next in Mongolia. Well, when you get back to the East Coast and you're cutting down from Dongbei and you're passing through Beijing, remember to give me a call and let's I'll get you hot pot. I'll think about it. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay. Thank you so much for joining the show, hey, Fernando, man, and we'll talk to you next time. Good. Thank you so much, and we'll uh, take care, guys. 